Our scripture reading today comes from Isaiah 43, 1-4. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba as in exchange for you, because you are, my, you are precious in my eyes, and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Um, I almost feel like I don't want to preach right now because that was just so good. Um, I don't want to ruin it, so... Uh, thank you, Peter and Jessica. That was amazing. Um, if you are in your Bibles, we are in Isaiah chapter uh, 42. Um, Mark did the first half last week. Let's this up. Mark did the first half last week. So we are in verses 18, and we're going all the way to the end of 44. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, so let's buckle up and let's and let's go. Um, last week was a um, in Isaiah, we talked a lot about how God is the God of comfort for us. And that's, and that's good. That's good news to sit in. That's good news to understand and rest in. And up until this point, everything's been fairly positive. We've talked about how God is, an active, how God is active and mighty like a warrior, um, leading his people through rough terrain and rough places. There's a new song of praise that, that starts to come in from the ends of the earth. Praise to the Father. Praise to Yahweh. And the prophet here, Isaiah, hopes that Israel will respond by becoming a servant, by becoming the servant of God. But that by having God's word among them, that they will continue to be the blessing to all the nations. That they will continue to know that they are called to be a different people so they can be a blessing to the nations around them. By having experienced God's justice, mercy, and righteousness throughout history, they can now start to share, really, who God is. This is what God's done in our lives. This is how God's redeemed us. This is the testimony of Israel to the nations, that God is a God of justice, of righteousness, of mercy, and of shalom. But we see here very quickly in verse 18 that the tone changes pretty quickly. The tone changes so fast. They respond instead of, of worship and thankfulness to God, they, re, they respond in accusations. So the big idea today that we want to talk about is this. Let's see if this will work. Big idea. God's enduring faithfulness to his people changes everything. God's enduring faithfulness to Israel, to his people, changes everything. So, verse 18, let's just kind of start going through this. One, one thing I was really tempted to do is you could almost make eight or nine mini-sermons out of this passage. So, um, I didn't want to do that to us today. So, what I want to do is I want to kind of highlight some of the sections. What is going on in the history of in, in, uh, Israel's history? And then make a couple applications at the end. Um, and then we'll be done for, the, for this morning. So, the first thing that we see is that Israel only has one hope. 
Israel only has one one hope. Verses 18 through 25 really starts to talk about how how now that God has done a lot of great things to Israel, Israel should now say that God is the king of history and become the servant that they were supposed to be, right? Uh, They were supposed to be the servant of God's justice, of God's law, of God's rule to, to the nations. But we realize very quickly that Israel is still purposefully blind and deaf. It starts, it starts in verse 18. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant and deaf as my messenger whom I send? He sees many things but doesn't observe them. His ears are open but he doesn't hear. So here is the current state of Israel. They are purposefully, willfully blind to the word of God. God has been providing his instruction in his ways. But his people, even though they perceive it, even though they can hear it, they have ignored it. God's law, the purpose of God's law is, is, to, is to do a couple things. First, it's to generate justice, generate righteousness, and generate shalom among his people. That's the purpose of God's law, right? We've, we've seen several times in, in the Old Testament how God's law was set up in a certain way to provide this shalom, this rest, this way of life that God actually intended. And every time Israel have, has looked outside of that way of life, the, the way of life was meant to be a reflection of who God is, what He wants for His people, and He wants flourishing, He wants peace, He wants righteousness among His people. But every time, every time Israel has failed to embrace it. God's people here, we see that they are still kind of, uh, in verse 22, but this people is plundered and looted. They are trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to save, restore. This is a straightforward metaphor of the, of the exile in Babylon. They're stuck. They're in prison. They are sent away. They've lost some of their identities of who Israel is supposed to be. But this, this exile in the life of Israel was meant to produce repentance. But instead, it has produced accusations. They start accusing God. They start saying, the exile, like, God, you have neglected us. You have, you have forgotten about us. You, maybe, maybe you're ignoring our cause. Maybe you're actually against us right now. Look at, look at what's happening around us. Babylon, they're, they're rich. They're doing well. Maybe, maybe the gods of Babylon are the actual true gods. And here, we're in exile. We're scattered. We have no land. We, we have nothing. So it's meant to produce repentance. And the only way to get any relief from misery or oppression in this sense is to hear and to see that God's law is meant to lead to life, justice, and shalom. Though they need rescue, there is literally no one to say, send them back, rescue us. There is no one to mediate on their behalf. Looking on the frightful events of, of, of this exile, Isaiah knew in this, in this section that not even ex- suffering and trauma on this kind of scale would bring a true change of heart. So, a different act of God will need to happen. And we'll see that come through. So, we kind of start out with this very negative tone here, right? We, we start out by saying, by God is telling the people of Israel, you are deaf and you are blind and you are doing that on purpose. Listen to God's law. 
I want to magnify my word. I want to magnify who I am and what I've said. Listen. Please listen. But then we see a shift. And this is part of uh, what was read this morning. The second thing is Israel, God, God's active care and concern for Israel. This is what we're going to start describing. Okay? And if you've grown up in church, if you've grown up in uh, Christianity, these are some very comforting verses to us. But we also have to take in under consideration that Israel is under exile right now. It's hard for them to understand this. It's hard for them to see the goodness, the good news in this passage. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you are Jacob, He who formed you are Israel. Fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. So we are moved to see a people who are under fire in verse 25 to literally saying, even though you walk through this fire, you will not be consumed. I am with you. You are mine. I have redeemed you. This is God's active care. God's active relationship with his people is getting spelled out right here. Within the covenant faithfulness of God, he is with his people even in the midst of pain and suffering. And this is something that we have to understand. Within the covenant relationship of God, there's blessings and cursings. There's grace and wrath. But above all, you have a God who never backs down from his promises. That in the midst of this pain and, 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 and suffering, God has always said, fear not, I am with you. What you are going through, it will not consume you. For the, for the Israelites here, this understanding of fire and water, it brings back hints of exodus, of the redemption. It brings back how God actually redeemed them and he led them through water. He led them by pillars of fire. Don't forget, I will always be with you. Remember what I've done in the past. And then we keep reading, and it gets kind of weird, I'll be honest here. When I first read this, I was, I don't know if, you've, if you ever get offended by what you're reading in the Bible. Um, you probably should. Like, there's times where in my mindset, in my lens, things, I, I don't like certain things. <laughs> okay? So let's read this. Like, I think this is going to be one of those things. For I am, in, 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 in verse 3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in, in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. So at first glance, there's this understanding that God, like, my first thought was God is bartering with people's lives here. Right? It didn't, it didn't seem... To me, it didn't seem fair. But here's what I think is actually going on. God is giving a salvation oracle, and he is and he's basically saying this. You, Israel, are a tiny and a miserable and insignificant band of uprooted men and women. You are assured that you, precisely you, are the people who God has turned to in love. You are precious. You are dear. You are precious in my sight. And think who says this. This is the Lord of all powers and authorities. The whole of history and creation. He is saying to unwanted people, I love you. I am going to move heaven and earth to get you back. Even Egypt, even, even land that is 
plentiful and fertile and has plenty, I would trade in anything to get you back. The imagery here is this. No one in the right minds would put that price on Israel, <laughs> right? This uprooted band of men and women who now have no national identity, who now have no land, they would, no one would put a price on Israel like that. If you've ever tried to sell something on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist, and you know the people are really desperate to sell this thing because they put, uh, give me $20 OBO or best offer, right? And then you get people, hey, I'll give it to you for $2, or I'll sell it to you for, would you take five? Right? You get these low-ball offers that really drive you nuts. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the idea of Israel here. No one would put such a high price on Israel. But God is saying, I want you back. No matter how, no matter how invaluable the world tells you you are, I value you. You are precious in my sight. I would give Egypt all of its riches and all of this land in exchange for his people. There is a, a substitution taking place here. God is going to exchange something that the world says is invaluable, and he is going to give up everything for it. God says, do not fear, for I am with you. He is making national promises here. He says in verse um, in verse 5, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. So there's a specific promise to the national people of Israel, those who were born in the line of Abraham. He's saying, don't worry, you are not going to be in exile forever. I will call you back. And then he also broadens that promise in verse, in verse 7. He says, everyone who I've called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So he's saying that not just you, Israel, but everyone else who I've called by my name, I will gather again. I will bring my people home. And through a Christian perspective, we can kind of see, we kind of get an understanding of God is going to build his church. God is going to bring his people together. And maybe a liberation kind of perspective, we can hear, we can see that God is taking preferential treatment of the poor and the outcast and the invaluable. And I think you can, and I think you can see both. I think both are valid here. But there's also a strong sense of God taking sides. And this idea of God taking sides can sometimes be a little bit offensive to us Westerners. Right? Um, this idea of God having preferential treatment of the poor and the outcasts. God is bringing his particular people, namely the Jews here, home into the safety and security of his care and loving kindness that's expressed through his word in the law, which now will lead to justice righteousness in life. What other hope would the poor and the outcast have except God's on their side? Right? Martin Luther King Jr., he's, he says, it's cruel just to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself up by his bootstraps when he doesn't even own any boots. The poor, the poor, the outsider, those that are in exile, they don't have the same power and influence and riches that the rich and powerful do. This one hope that God gives preferential treatment to the poor is a hope to which those that are displaced, those that are despised, those that are on the outside, that they cling to so closely. And if this sounds somewhat offensive to us today, it, it, 
It very well may be because we have never experienced the lash of an empire before. It very well may be that we have been the one who has the money and the power and the influence. So it probably probably means that you are the one with that power and influence. The only hope that the exilic community has right now is that God is on their side. So then we see, we, we get to another scene. Isaiah chapter 43. We had a court scene last week. There's another court scene this week. Another trial. Yahweh is now in dispute with the other gods among the nations for the rightful claim to be the God of the nations. The other nations are asked to bring their gods in and bring in their witnesses, and the nations are to advocate for their own gods. The funny thing here is that the witness that Yahweh calls in is Israel. And Israel is still blind and deaf. Okay? Now imagine yourself in a court scene. And um, no court really would take into evidence um, what a blind person has recently seen or what a deaf person has recently heard. Right? That's, that, doesn't, that doesn't hold a lot of weight. But what, but what Yahweh here is saying is, like, is, is this. I have a people... Look at this people. They are here. They are my witnesses. They have been delivered. The fact that you are here shows that God is an active God in the world. Yahweh is solely responsible for his own case right now. He says this. This is the Israel. You are the evidence of my character. You are, you are the uh, uprooted band of men and women who have no identity. And you are my witness to me of who I am, of, how I, of, of what I've done in the world. Who among them is able to say, I've done what I've done? I, in verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. What other gods have saved a group of people who no one valued? I declared, and I saved, and I proclaimed, when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Other, other nations in the world, try to undoing what I've done. Other gods in, of the nations, try undoing what I've said. No one can do it. So God proves himself to be the God of the nations here. Next section, a second exodus. 42, uh, sorry, 43, 14 through 21. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator King, your Israel. Verse 16, here's where it gets really good. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, sounds like Exodus, right? A path in the mighty waters who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They're extinguished, quenched like a quenched like a wick. But don't remember those former things. Don't remember those former things. Don't don't focus on those things. This is these little hints that we've gotten all throughout the chapters. So these chapters so far now come full force to this. He now says, "We've established the fact that I am God." Set. That's a fact. I am Yahweh. No one can undo what I've done. I have rule over other nations, and I will deliver you. 
but I'm also holy. So this is what you need. Before you had a mere national liberation. You were rescued from oppression. You were rescued out of Egypt. And that wasn't enough. You have, you have continued to sin. You have continued to rebel. You have continued to worship after other idols. Don't look on the past. God is going to do a new thing. Verse, verse 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not per- per- perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So no longer will you be wandering around for years in the desert without, without drink. I'm going to transform the entire landscape. I'm going to change it all. There will be a new and a better exodus. One that turns arid deserts into fountains. One where instead of wandering in the desert, needing to find a drink from a rock, but one where I am outpouring my spirit to you. And you will be nourished and you will be refreshed. The past is very, is very obstructive of what will happen, but it's only, it's only a shadow. It's only a piece. It's not the real thing. And God is promising to do a new exodus. But we still have to find out what that is, so let's, so let's keep, keep, keep looking here. 43, 22 through 28, there's a backwards relationship. So the tone keeps changing in, the, in, these, in these passages. You have one of your blind and deaf Israel. Get it together. Don't forget. When you pass through the waters, you will not be consumed because I have called you, I have redeemed you. And then it talks about how you are still my, my, my blind and deaf witnesses. And then it talks about how there's going to be a second exodus where there's going to be a way of escape. There's going to be a, a, a new thing happening. Then it kind of goes back again. Israel had not been the people that God had made them to be. Isaiah starts describing the kind of worship that God intended for them to do even while they're in exile. And he didn't burden them with it. When you're in exile, it's kind of hard to do the sacrifices like you were used to. It's kind of hard to do um, some of the old rituals that you were supposed to do. I've not burdened you with my worship, but you have burdened me with your sins and failings. That even in, in the midst of exile, when you were supposed to be a people to the nations, you were supposed to showcase the goodness of God to the, to the, to the uh, Babylonians, I was constantly burdened by your sins and failings. Constantly burdened. That, that idea here is that you have actually caused me to serve you. You have actually caused me to step down into this world and, and serve you by forgiving all of your sins. So this relationship is out of whack. Instead of Yahweh or instead of Israel being the servant they were meant to be, now God is the one actually serving here. The whole relationship is, is, is out of whack. Their only option is that God will have to blot out your sins. Verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's the only way forward. The only way to understand this is that you have a God that forgives. There is nothing that Israel can do right now to get back in a relationship with God. Because of, their, because of their stubbornness, because of their continued sin, God says, the only way forward is I will forgive you. And then chapter 44. It's better than the original. Right? It's like Dark Knight is better than Batman Begins, or Empire Strikes Back is better than The New Hope. There's, there's times where the sequel is better than the original. 
Godfather 2 better than Godfather. I, I could go on for a little bit. God's outpouring of his spirit, those are not debatable. I will not fight you on those things. Okay. Um, God's outpouring, outpouring of the spirit is what actually finally causes his people to speak and hear. Verse 40, uh, chapter 44, 1 through 5. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up like the grass, like willows by, flow, by flowing streams. This one, so we actually have a response from Israel. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, I am the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. They are actually starting to respond to the working of God by God's outpouring of the Spirit. They are, the Spirit of God is what causes his people to be a confessional people. The Spirit in you, the Spirit in us, causes us to be confessional people. Now the people who have been silent are responding to the Word of God. Formal national Israel is now becoming part of true Israel. A people of God through the Spirit of God. And then 9 through, what is that, 20... Isaiah starts to get real logical with the Israelites on this idea of idols and what they're meant to be. The big, the, the big idea is Israel has taken this stump of wood where they've actually planted the seed in the ground. And the, the, the tree has actually grown. And then they chop it down for wood. They, they chop it down for, for heat. They chop it down so they can cook some food on. And, and, and Isaiah's like, you do realize what you're doing. You planted that tree. You cut it down. Why are you worshiping? Like, you formed this thing. You can't worship something that you formed. That doesn't make any sense. That's illogical. And he goes on to say in verse 20, he actually feeds on ashes. You might as well just be, be worshiping the ashes in your fireplace. That's what you might be worshiping. You might as well. It's nothing. Have you ever picked up ashes? It just it falls apart in your hands. It's nothing. It can't do anything for you. And then starting in chapter 42, uh, um, then starting the rest of chapter 44, we start to see some parallel movements here. Starting in, in chapter 42, verse 18, um, talks about how it opens first with this idea of Israel is in captivity, and it ends with Israel will be coming home, with the return home. There's a second movement that starts with Israel's sin, and ends with a call to return to God. Now here... This is a call to remember what we just read. The idolater has been the one busy fashioning the idols, but Israel has been the one truly fashioned by Yahweh. The idolater is bound to the idol, but Israel is the Lord's bondservant. The idolater prays, save me to this block of wood, but Yahweh is the one who proclaims, I have redeemed you. The idolater bows to a block of wood or a tree or a stump. But in verse, in verse 23 of chapter 44, it says, Because of what I've done, every tree will be summoned to rejoice and clap for who God is. Verse 23, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. 
So instead of bowing down to a block of wood, what God causes is he causes a full restoration of everything. One where the trees, the mountains, everything in it rejoices. Don't bow down to that. God is going to restore everything. When the Lord comes to reign over his people, the curse will have been lifted from all creation. He comes to set all things right, liberating actual trees to clap and sing. And what is done for Israel here has cosmic, global implications for us. So what we want to do is we want, we want to talk about a couple things. There's a couple points. That's, a, that's, that's this chapter in a nutshell, minus the eight-part miniseries. Okay? So we've talked about here how, how God actually cares about the poor and the outsider. But he also cares about forgiving your sins. He also cares about restoring everything back to himself. So the first thing I want to go over real, real quick is this. The first thing that we can see is the church has been presented with a false choice of social justice for the gospel. It's either or. Right? It's, it's either we care for the physical creation of this world. We care that God is going to restore all these things one day. We, we care that... that we care that people are outside of poverty. We, we care that people are healthy. We care that um, the poor are taken care of. Those are good things. Or we're on the side of all God wants for us is for us to go to heaven when we die. We're presented with this false either-or choice. But what God cares, as we've seen here, is that God does both. He's put in laws in, in, in the Torah that takes care of the wanderer. He puts in laws to take care of the poor. We've got gleaning laws that you can't, you can't glean everything on your property so that the poor, those that are, that are wandering through the immigrant, can be taken care of with food. He puts in the day of jubilee, right, so that, so that the, the, the gap between the poor and the wealthy isn't there forever. But he also puts in the sacrificial system that says, one day I'm going to be the one that's going to be that's going to go through the water and the fire, and it will consume me, and it and it will overtake me, but it won't overtake you. I do it for your sake. The weak are not neglected, and they're prevent and, and there's laws in place to prevent uh, systemic justice. They're not. Met, Israel is not meant here to be attracted because of their power or money, but by this fact, that God, through his mercy, chose, chose a small, insignificant family and nation to bless the world. And we seem to have been presented with this either-or choice. But the full, the whole, fulsome gospel says both. The full gospel says both. But today we have... We, especially in the white American church, we've largely abandoned the call to justice and instead replaced it with a primarily truncated gospel. Second thing, the world and its systems may tell you that you are insignificant and invaluable, but God has moved heaven and earth for you. The world measures you by what you can do for it, right? By what you can produce, by what, by what output you receive or what output you give. If you make this amount of money, or if you can get this many views on a Facebook video, or if, if, if you're single, when are you going to get married, right? 
that's, that's a value that's placed on, on you. Or if you're married, you don't have kids, when are you going to have kids? The world places another value on that. How old you are, right? Like, I work in H- I've worked in HR for 12-plus, 12 12-odd 12 years. There's rules in place to prevent discrimination from some of those misplaced value propositions, right? You're only going to be valued. Your only value to us as a company is basically going to be if you're if you're a white guy, if you're a straight white guy. That's that's what the world that's where the world places value. If you're old, well, your value is not going to be. You're not going to be around long enough to be able to provide value to us. So we're going to go with a younger person. Or if you're this race, or if you're this gender, or if you're this orientation, this is why affirmative action was made. But know this, that just like how God would ransom up Egypt in exchange for Israel, who's an insignificant band of nobodies, he gave up something even greater in exchange for you. Just like how God made the exchange for his people, God continued to show that one day he's going to make an exchange that's going to be permanent. He's he's going to give up his son so that he could redeem this insignificant band of nobodies here because he values you. You are valuable to him. He moved heaven and earth so he could do that. I have two questions. God is telling this insignificant band of uprooted men and women that they are valuable. For you and your MC, what does this mean for you? I have a microphone somewhere. I'll take two questions because we're running short on time. Two questions. What, is, what does this mean? God values you. God values the, the people who the world seems to be to place a low value on. How does this change the way you live in your current in your current place? I struggle with with finding value in who I am and what God has called me to be. But I also struggle with seeing value in other people. Okay. Just like you guys are saying, we have a different understanding of success, right? Um, we could build everything one day and everything's gone the next day, but that doesn't mean we're not successful. But we're going to build anyways. Yeah, that's good. Anyone else? Don't have to prove it. When 
improve myself. I don't have to pander to the high and mighty, mm. as they're seen in our society. That I can move toward those who have no value. Right. Using air quotes. Yep. Um, because, because I'm valued, I'm not proving myself, and I can let love be its own reward. Mm. Just in the same way. And I, it's because I'm loved, not right. because It's an idea of the upside-down kingdom, yep, right? Like, what the world says is valuable. Jesus died for the invaluable. He shows particular care for those who no one else is valuing. Second thing, how have you, God, how, how have you seen God to be with you recently through fire and water? This is, this is that confessional time, right? Fire and water, they're not meant to consume. They're not meant to overwhelm. 
So here's how Jesus is the hero. We need to finish with this. That's not there. Sorry, that was my fault. So Jesus is the hero. He inaugurated this new creation in his death and resurrection, and he now holds the door open to new creation for us. Right? We've talked about this idea that that everything is going to be transformed solely because of God's enduring faithfulness to us. God is faithful to you. We've heard testimony. We have, we have seen scripture. We have, we have heard stories. God is faithful. Even when we go through times where we can't see it. Even when we're depressed and there doesn't seem to be a way out. God will continue to be faithful. Because, because this, this happens. We are given a new name, a new identity, and a new purpose. We are now to showcase the same shalom that God shows us. We are to declare and demonstrate the full gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what life should be like. Where the powerful give up their power for the sake of their community. Where physical needs are met and people are discipled. And though in, and though in exile, and though going through that fire and water, they will no longer overwhelm you because they overwhelm Jesus. Jesus was consumed by the fire so that it wouldn't consume you. And this is how Jesus is the hero. He went through all that. He did that for the sake of his people, for his, for his long, ever, everlasting, enduring faithfulness to us. So we're going to celebrate that at the table. We're going to celebrate that long, that, that long faithfulness that even though when we're not faithful, we can always go back to the long faithfulness of Jesus.